Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today we have Michael Olson on the Urban Farm Podcast to share about his Metro Farm project and the 2 by 2 pledge. Michael cultivated his first crop at the age of six and has since participated in the commercial production of a wide variety of crops in California, Montana, and Oregon. Michael also consults on farm projects throughout the world, from the island of Cyprus to the jungles of Amazon and right here in the United States. He has diverse experience from journalism and broadcast media management to developing and selling his very own fertilizer and is an advocate for local businesses. Michael is currently a partner in the MO Multimedia Group of Santa Cruz, California. Welcome to the show today, Michael. Pleased to have you uh, pick me up today. We're going to have some fun. Yeah, very good. So I shared a little bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share about how the path that you took to get where you're at today? Sure. Really br- briefly, uh, from your descriptions, farm my uh, did my first commercial farming at the age of six, which is the truth. As a matter of fact, I actually remember the day my grandfather put me up on top of that tractor and said, okay, he put it in gear and then jumped off, and he said, I'll meet you at the other end of the field. <laughs> oh, my gosh, really? And so there I was, a six-year-old on this giant machine. Uh, I got so scared, I peed my pants, which is how I remember the whole thing. Wow, yeah. But I made it to the other end, and I've been tractor-friendly ever since. Nice. So, so uh, in, and through my youth, you know, I spent a lot of time on grandparents' farm and farms throughout the Yellowstone River Valley of Montana. I jokingly referred to the fact that in high school, I was a teenage herbicide, which is to say I spent a lot of hot summer days hoeing weeds out in the beet fields and bean fields of Montana. And, you know, when you're a, a kid, a teenager, and you're hoeing weeds, you're, you know, it's not what you want to be doing. What you're doing is looking up at the sky and watching all those airplanes fly over and all thinking, right. take me away. <laughs> and one of them finally did. And so I went out into the world. Um, compliments to the U.S. Navy. I was introduced to, to Japan. Oh, wow. And I spent a lot of time riding bicycles around the Japanese countryside and what struck my attention was the incredible intensity with which Japanese farmers cultivated their land. 
you know, here in, the, in Montana, there was always lots of space to spread out. There were fewer people in the entire state of Montana than there is in the city limits of San Francisco. Wow. So, you know, <laughs> the population density is very small. And in Japan, the population density is very tight. So whereas my grandfather had 320 acres to work with, you know, the Japanese farmers might have three and a half acres. Right. So wow. they had to be much more intensive, and that's what struck me really incredibly uh, as I was riding bicycle across the Japanese countryside. Wow. And then later, when I was uh, at the University of California, Santa Cruz, I was studying Chinese literature and spending a lot of time in the language lab learning Chinese. Right outside the language lab, there was a little, little uh, beautiful little garden put together by this English Shakespearean guy, Alan Chadwick. Uh-huh. Somehow, that, that guy had figured out a way to get all the pretty girls on campus to <laughs> dig in the dirt. So I'd, you know, I'd crawl out of that language lab, that dark, dank space, you know, where you're listening to tape all day, and I'd, I'd go sit on a log in the sunshine and watch all the pretty girls digging in the dirt, and I got to thinking, I must be missing something here. That's what I was running away from, and right. all of those people are running to, to it. To it, yeah, exactly. And it was kind of that way. And, and then later, when I was uh, working for NBC Television, I was working for a guy named David Brinkley, and we were <laughs> NBC Magazine with David Brinkley, and we were competing with 60 Minutes. And we were doing a piece on survivalists up in the southern areas of Oregon, the Rogue River Valley. Uh-huh. And uh, survivalists, of course, are the people who think the city's all going to collapse, so they move to the country and get themselves a can of crackers and some guns and hunker down and wait for Armageddon. And so, you know, we were standing on a hill overlooking the Rogue Valley and we are doing an establishing shot. You know, we had the talents sitting there with a microphone. Beyond, you could see the Rogue Valley of Southern Oregon. This is where the survivalists hang out. And on an impulse, I turned to a guide and I said, uh, Nancy, you know, we were looking down this beautiful valley where there was all of these beautiful little properties. Right. Nobody was growing anything. So oh, I said, Nancy, we should make a pamphlet on ways to make money with those small parcels of land. And Nancy said, Michael, that's a wonderful idea. And uh, a couple months later, I got a call from Nancy. And she said, Michael, I sold your book. <laughs> and I said, How great is that? Nancy, that's great. What book? <laughs> I, I mean, she did the whole thing. She had that big Chicago publisher right. and a New York City publicist all ready to go and I didn't have the slightest idea what the hell to do. Uh-huh. So I mean, so I went looking for who made money with small parcels of land. Mm. And I went to the census of agriculture and I just started thumbing through its pages. They had pages in those days. Looking for well who actually makes money with small parcels of land. Right. And I found it interesting comparison. You, whereas the average acre of farmland in Iowa, in the heart of the heartland, made about $330 per acre per year. Wow, that's it? Yeah. The average acre of farmland in the city limits of San Francisco was closer to seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 per acre per year. How far back do these numbers go? Well, that's quite a while ago. This is the uh, early 80s. Wow. Okay. Now, I looked at the, those numbers and I thought, how does that work? I mean, mm-hmm. how, blah, 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 right? Right, exactly. So the first thing you have to realize, I then, once I got those numbers, I was, I was hooked. Right. 
I was saying that something's here, and I'm not know if I don't know about it, I bet no few other people know about it. Uh-huh. So I start I went looking for people who were actually doing this, and I found them, but they weren't so interested in being found. Oh, interesting. You know, I mean, they're making a lot of money on and it's cash. Right. So. They weren't too interested in, t- in spelling out the exact details. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, I did find five of them, uh, and I developed relationships with them. And what was interesting was that they're different. Each one they're of them were different? And, yeah, they're, they're all different. They're old and young. They're rich and poor. They uh-huh. were married and single. They, were, they owned land. They rented it. Uh, they're growing all kinds of different crops in all kinds of different settings. But the one thing that they all did was that they were growing in or near the market for the market. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And so, and so there I was left with the fact that, you know, out there in the countryside, mm-hmm. in, in the heart of the heartland, they're growing commodities for the commodity market. Right. Whereas metropolitan farmers or metro farmers as i call them right are growing specialty crops for the money and that's where your book came the hungry people who live in the city and think about how hungry people in the city are for oh yeah food and that, think that, about how hard it is to find real food mm-hmm. in the city oh yeah and if you and if you can get real food and real flowers and real things to them they're hungry and they have money. Oh, yes. And so that really became the foundation principle of Metro Farm. And so I went out and I found these people doing all kinds of different things. And pretty much uh, I had in-depth conversations with them. And then I synthesized what they did into a basic formula for how to go about doing this without losing money. Right. Which is, you That's- know... The, the biggest tragedy I saw in all my research was people who think, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go out and grow kiwi uh-huh. because I like kiwi. Right. And so, you know, they run out and spend all this money growing kiwi when they don't have a market for it. Uh-huh. They don't know how to grow it. Yeah. And, and so I try to, with my Metro Farm book, uh, establish a procedure by which you can think your way through the process of doing this as a business rather wow. than having fun as a hobby you know, as a hobby yeah, yeah exactly so and this metro farm book i have one in my left hand um, you and i actually met in 2002 at a conference at fairview gardens and you signed it to me it says uh september oh, really? yeah september 2002 for greg best wishes for many vintage harvests in phoenix michael olson so this well, is great yeah, yeah. this is a pretty hefty book here i mean this is uh what five you know the you know the, the fun thing about signing a book for somebody uh-huh they're less likely to sell it at the second <laughs> bookstore right <laughs> how, how true that is so that's yeah. that's the metro farm project right the, your your book is the metro farm project well, that's kind of like the the foundation of my Metro Farm world. Uh-huh. Um, I also do consulting. I also do a radio show called The Food Chain. Yes, I love and your I'm show, also, by the way. when it gets right down to it, a jihadist for learning how to take back control of our lives uh-huh. through food. Oh, yes. That's a big, big, it's part of what drives you all that, right? 
Well, yeah, because that's what jihadists are all driven by something crazy. Uh-huh. And mine is the notion that we can take control of our lives. Which, you know, it's interesting enough because it was born of that spirit of survivalism uh-huh. on that hill overlooking the Rogue Valley of Southern Oregon. Right. And, and the irony is that after all of these years, I realize that food is the key to taking control back yeah. for ourselves. Yeah. Well, in our culture. And when we, when, yes, in our culture and everything. If we give up our food and rely on them, mm-hmm. we're lost. Yeah. Who are them in and this Who are case? them? Yeah. I, I would love to tell you who they are. <laughs> I would, would you be ready? Go. Let's do it. Okay. First of all, um, I'd like to back up a little bit. Okay. Part of my jihad is called the two-by-two two pledge. Oh, please. Yes. Let's talk about that. Okay. Now, the two, it, the two, with the two-by-two two pledge, I assert... Mm-hmm. that we can eat our way to economic security and personal freedom. Mm-hmm. It won't cost an extra penny. We won't need any help from the government. And it will be so easy, it will make you blush. Oh, bring it. Okay. Now, before I bring it, uh-huh. I have to tell you that they don't want us to do that. Yeah. Which is getting back to them and mm-hmm. they. Mm-hmm. Who are them and who are they? So part of my other life is that I'm the general manager of, of news talk radio stations. Oh, interesting. Okay. okay. So, you know, for 20 years, I've listened to the give and take of uh, left and right. Right. On the right, I hear, we hate big government, right? Mm-hmm. Big government is out to trap us and, and and control us and turn us into slaves. Right. And on the left, I hear, we hate big business. Mm. Big business is out to take all of our money. And turn us into slaves. Turn turn us into slaves. Yeah. So this is what, you know, in the communal backyard, here we are throwing apples at each other over the backyard fence. We hate big government. We hate big business. Big government, big business. Uh So this is what, the, the dialogue is, and while we're in the backyard throwing apples at each other, right? Guess who's in the house stealing a blind? Tell me. It's okay. I'm going to give you who they are now. Uh huh. They are those who possess the economies of scale uh. sufficient to own the government. Wow, okay? that's a powerful statement. It's a powerful statement. And let me explain economies of scale in a, in a way that I think most everybody can understand. Let's say Greg has 1,000 acres mm-hmm. and Michael has one acre. Right. Okay? Let's say one day Greg and Michael decide to go to the store and buy a new tractor. Mm-hmm. Okay? Tractor costs $10,000. Uh, okay. I see where you're going How with this. Much how much does that tractor cost Greg with his thousand acres? Ten dollars an acre. Ten dollars an acre. How much does that ten thousand dollar tractor cost Michael with his one acre? Ten thousand dollars per acre. Okay. Now who has the advantage in buying the, the equipment? Well that would absolutely be me. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Now let's ch- change direction and talk a little bit about uh, Michael and Greg each need to have, uh, uh, let's say, water rights adjudicated by the government. Right. 
And the best way of doing that, of course, is getting very close to the people who are controlling that stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, the best way to do that is take them for a ride in your business jet. Now, let's say that business jet costs $10,000 for a ride. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, Greg's got 1,000 acres, and Michael's has a thousand, uh, one acre. One acre, right. So how much is it going to cost to fly that congressman for Greg? Oh, yeah. Ten bucks. Right. Right? And it's going to cost Michael 1,000 bucks. Right. So there you are. Those who have the economies of scale can go to government yeah. and have an impact on who should do what when. Now, let's take, let's take a look at, at government. Uh-huh. And, and make an illustration. Let's say there's a problem with toxic spinach. Mm-hmm. And so what does, what does uh, Senator Joe Blow do? He says, this spinach is poison. We have to fix it. And I'm going to fix it. I'm going to introduce legislation to fix the spinach. Now, what does Senator Joe Blow know about fixing spinach that's been poisoned with who knows what? Yeah, probably nothing. nothing. Yeah. Nothing. So... He's going to ask the experts. Now, who are the experts he's going to ask? Probably be those people with a thousand acres of spinach. Exactly. Right? Yes. Why? Because they're the ones that are flying them around in the in the business jet. Right. And supposedly, okay. and supposedly, no. Yes. So, and and then what happens to poor Michael with his acre? Not much going to be looked upon there. Right. So what happens? So it, it, because of that, we come up with federal legislation. Mm-hmm like H.R. 875 and S-510 Food Safety Modernization Act, uh-huh. like H.R. 1332, the Safe Food Modernization Act, like S-722, the Dietary Supplement Act. Let me give you some quotes from the head of the Food and Drug Administration's Food Safety, uh-huh. who happens to be a guy named Michael Taylor, who happens to be the former vice president of Monsanto. Monsanto, right. All right. Listen to these quotes from your government. You have no absolute right to consume or feed children any particular food. There is no deeply rooted historical tradition granting you unfettered access to foods of all kinds. Wow. You do not have a fundamental right to obtain any food you wish. Uh-huh. Okay. This is and he's in charge of are. and he's in charge of what? He's in charge of the. He's he's America's food safety czar. Food safety czar. I know. Isn't that wild? Okay. So now, whose interests? For whom is he going to be making food safe? Well, not not us. Let's go back to the well, uh, the them. You're the one with a thousand acres. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Back but, to that. But, so, the, so do you understand that relationship yeah. between economies of scale? scale. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's really not big big business, and it's really not big government that's the problem. It's big business and big government working hand in, in hand. hand. Yeah. And so here we are in the backyard throwing apples at each other over the fence. Mm-hmm. When we need to be looking pretty. When we need to be really be cooperating. Yeah. When we yes. need to be cooperating. Exactly. Now that leads us to the two by two pledge. Ah, please. How do we cooperate? in a way that won't cost us an extra dime, in a way that we won't need any help from the government because their government is not interested in seeing that we're uh, eating our way to economic security and personal freedom. And the last thing the government wants is somebody that doesn't need the government, right? Right, exactly. 
I mean, what could be more frightening to a government than somebody who doesn't need Need it? What could be more frightening to bid business than than have a million businesses competing with it? Yeah. So how on earth are we going to do this in in a way that won't cost any any money? And it'll be so easy that it will make you blush. Well, here's how easy it's going to be. All you need to do is remember two numbers. Okay. One is two. And I'll bet the other is is two. two. There you go. Two by two pledge. Okay. Okay. Now, what the heck is he talking about? First two, I pledge to spend $2 per day on local food. Now, what the heck is local food? Well, yeah. Well, one reason, one thing I always say is kind of food with its farmer's face on it. Oh, yes, which absolutely. Is, which is to say you know where it came from. Right. And, and you kind of know the farmer. You may not see him or talk to him every day, mm-hmm. um, you know, but you know who, you know who you have control over that food because you know where it's coming where from. Where it's coming. Yeah. And, and the man or the woman or the guy or the gal that actually raised it. Yeah. Well, think of the power in that. No Just kidding. That. That's is, huge, right? Yeah. This is where the know your farmer comes in at. Mm-hmm. And in knowing your farmer, owning your farmer. Yeah. So that's one, two. Two dollars per day. Mm-hmm. Now, there is some, you know, extra cost in that because you have to learn who the farmer is. Right. Where you know, to find you have it. to, you have, you have two dollars in your hand. You go, wow, what am I going to do with this? Uh-huh. You know, and I'm, I mean, that's like $28 a week, right? So you got to eat. You're going to have to buy food. So you have to take that $2 a day and think, uh-huh. where am I going to spend this? Right. And all of us, and in, in that process, we're going to become more intelligent. Right. Because we're going to start thinking about where our food comes from and, and what's in it. And for, for those listeners that don't know where to start to, where, to look, where, where would you look in a local area to, to find that local food? That's a good question. My daughter just moved to the other side of the country, uh-huh. Santa Cruz, California. <laughs> and, and it's like Santa Cruz is a food paradise, you know. Right, oh, yeah. And on the other side of the country, not so. Yeah. So she's just going through that process right now. Uh-huh. And I suggested to her that, of course, she start with the local natural food stores. Uh, oh, and, yes. And in a lot of the local natural food stores are starting to feature the names of their farmers and whatnot. Oh, and yes. And respond to that demand already. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So, so where is the food coming from? Then you can learn about farmers markets. Then you can learn about CSAs and on and on and on. Yeah. And on. CSAs. So let's, let's let's just speak to CSAs. Community supported agriculture. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But you know, when I first started doing this, there was one farmers market in this town. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Now there's probably pretty close to a dozen. Nice. And, and they're everywhere, mm-hmm. and people everywhere are supporting them. They're going to them. Uh, so later you're going to ask me about my great success in life. Uh-huh. If I have one, right. it will be contributing to people taking charge of their life through their food again. Right. Great. And that I see that happening. Uh-huh. Okay. I see that happening. And that's the $2. It's just two dollars. Also, all you have to fix in your mind. Right. It's it's like a candy bar or something, mm-hmm. right? Something yeah. stupid. 
So you take that money, find real food from a real person, mm-hmm. and you're so you're you're getting you're getting real food. You're you're building a farmer, uh-huh. right? So you're 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 taking ownership of a farmer, and that farmer's taking ownership of you. Yeah. Okay. So a molecular bond there is happening. Nice. All right. So, so that's, that's the two dollars. And what's the other two? Pretty easy, huh? Yeah. So that's the first two. The other two, I talk to other people into doing the same thing. Uh, nice. That's where the community comes in. So we're building a community now. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Now, it shouldn't be too hard for me to do that, to talk to other people. Right. Into spending $2 today on buying food that will make them healthy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that will build a community, will build a farmer. Right. All right. I have to do a little proselytizing, perhaps. <laughs> okay, but then I'm going to sit down with them and show, run the numbers for them, so mm-hmm. that, to help them understand that it's not just buying food we're doing here. We're building the local that economy. It's building a local economy. So yeah. I'm going to sit down and, and explain this. Let's say each person talks two other people into doing this. Uh-huh. Not going to be too long before everybody in the community is focused on $2 a day. Mm-hmm. Now, in my neck of the woods, this metropolitan market I live in is about 500,000 people there, which is convenient for you know, running quick numbers. So right. 500,000 people. If each one of them spends $2, $2 a, day, a day, that's a million dollars a day. Yep. In cold, hard cash currency, where there was none before, or where there was a little one before, right. Who knows? And that's going okay. into our local local economy to make local jobs. Economy. And... Now, what, what happens in, in local is that money that you spend here uh-huh. circulates around and around and around seven times oh, nice. before it dissipates and goes away. Right. So the idea, then, is that it's not just a million dollars a day, right? Right. It's a million dollars times, times seven. seven. Wow. And that's a $7 million a day. Impact in our local economy. Impact. Just by us spending $2 a day on local food. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, that's $7 million a day times 365 days. Well, that's $2.5 billion per year of cold, hard cash, local money, local food economy. Wow. Forcing through our economic veins. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot, that's enough to support a lot of farms right. and a lot of farmers and a lot of farm workers and a lot of butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. And a lot of healthy people. Yes, and, and with all of those healthy people, we're going to want to get even more healthy. Mm-hmm. So instead of just spending $2 a day, we're going to start going, this is really cool. I enjoy this. I love buying food from real people. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to spend $10 a day on real food for real people, mm-hmm. all right? So all of a sudden, for, for that few dollars a day we're spending on local food, we already have to buy the foods. We're not spending an extra penny. Right. So, and when we get up to $10, holy smokes, we have a $12.5 billion a year industry. Difference in our space, yeah which is all under our control. Mm-hmm. We don't need any help from anybody. 
Right. And now think of the threat we are <laughs> to, to them. them. To them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this you know this it's a, it's a grassroots thing. We have to take it on and do it ourselves. And this is the this is my this is the my envisioned pathway through it as well. Yeah. Let me give you a precedent. Okay. So you you uh, understand that not only can this be done, uh -huh. but it has been done on a scale unimaginable to us, and that would be in China. Oh, yes. Now, during the days of, of, of Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution, the city and the country were divided and separated from each other. Uh -huh. Those who lived in the country lived in the country. Those who lived in the city lived in the city. There was a wall between them. Oh, wow. In fact, if you were a country bumpkin and snuck into town, they caught you and throw you in jail. Oh, interesting. Okay. Now, to what purpose? You yes. Ask. Yeah. Because the government, that allowed the government to go out into the country and tell the farmers, you will grow this, mm. and I will give you this much for it. Oh. Yeah. And if you don't do it, we'll chop your head off. And they would... Go, then go to people in the city, and they would say, we have the food. If you want it, you have to do what we want you oh, to do. Oh, interesting. Okay? Right. So that, that think of the control, the magnificence of, of that control. That's just, yeah. You know? When it's almost, it's, it's almost that here in our country. Yes. <laughs> interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh-huh. Okay. It is. Now, how, how, how did the Chinese overcome that? Well, the, the natural inclination for them was to take up their pitchforks, right? Uh -huh. And start, and start. I'm not going to do this anymore. So what happened when they did that? Well, the government sent in the army and they shot them all dead. Mm -hmm. You know how many people Mao Zedong murdered? Wow. Don't know. 65 million. Wow. All over food. Huge. All over food. Well, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. It was over food and how to grow food, and, and yes, it right. was a war of food. The Great Leap Forward, it was called. Mm -hmm. so, so, and, and they, they obviously overcame it in some way. Yeah, so how did they? Yes, obviously, right? Look at China. Boom! Yeah. What was the cause of that explosion in China? Well, if you lis listen to the official party line in, in all, a lot of the... Uh, economies of scale media, uh -huh. what, they tell, what they tell you is that it was um, Deng Xiaoping who changed the rules and regulations of how things work. Uh -huh. But if you read a book called How the Farmers Changed China by Kate Xiaochou, now Kate was a six-year-old when the, when the um, Cultural Revolution swept her up, killed her parents. Uh -huh. they, were, they were college professors. Her and her little sister pushed out into the countryside and uh, just forced to leave to leave and walk out into the countryside until a farmer uh, adopted them. Oh, interesting. Them. So they, she wrote this book from first-hand experience. Yes. yes. And now Kate later went on to uh, become a college-educated um, political science. She has a Ph.D. in political science from... Princeton. Oh, interesting. She, she now teaches at the University of Hawaii. Okay. 
And so, so that's, he that's how this looked gets... back at and said, it was not Deng Xiaoping uh-huh. that changed China. It was the farmers that changed China. How did she do that? Well, instead of you know, raising up their pitchforks and, and poking the local cadre in the butt with the pitchforks, uh-huh. they one one uh, you know, to approach the local communist cadre and said, "Look, if you just let us sell some of our extra stuff, we'll give you uh, half the money." Oh, interesting. Uh huh. Okay, and the the local party cadre said, "Well, you're my neighbor, and I could use the extra money. So sure, why not?" Oh. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, and so they, I mean they're close enough. I mean when you're when you're a communist cadre and your neighbors you know growing watermelons or something and they want to sell some extra and you look at the watermelons and yeah let's make some money here. Right. I have the power. You have the melons. Let's work together. <laughs> so I took some carts of the melons into the city, and oh my God, the city people had access to fresh food. Right. A, a, a separate from the government control. And that's what's happening here. We're seeing that happening. That, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And and we can do it. And we can eat our way to economic security and personal freedom. And it'll be so easy to <laughs> make you blush. Well, there you go. So in all of this, what do you consider your biggest success around that? You know, I, I guess it is the jihad aspects of it, of, of a holy war mm-hmm. to me. It, to me, it really is a holy war in giving power back to the people. Yeah. That's real. Um, From a food perspective, that's really what this is about for me as well. Because I can tell you're passionate like I am about this. We've got to change this. Yeah, well, and it's, it's going to be easy to do. Yeah. It's, it's going to be so easy to do. And all of the rules will change uh-huh. when all of the people change the rules. rules. Yeah. yeah, that is such a brilliant notion. It's and, and we don't have to fight. We don't right. have to take our pitchforks, though we'd sure like to sometimes. Right. You know? all, gonna... all we have to do is the two-by-two two pledge yeah. and keep impressing on people the fact that they can take total control of their lives again. Right. And I'm going to invite all our listeners to take it on. You know, it's, it's, it's simple, and it's delicious, and it will make you blush. <laughs> yeah. And it will make you, you blush. You know, and, and, th- and the, the only cost, really, is the cost of educating yourself yeah. and empowering yourself and making the connection with people who grow food. I always think, you know, the people who grow the food and the flowers and whatnot should be the rock stars of our community. Yeah. Big I mean, time. They, yeah, they should be the ones we hold up. Right. I think there will come a day. I think there will come a day. Yeah. So you mentioned... We can do it really, really quickly with the two-by-two two pledge, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you mentioned education. I am all about education. Um, I'm constantly taking classes and reading. And I, I, want to, I want to know, do you have one book um, that you would recommend for people to... I know you've already mentioned a couple. Do you have one that you would recommend that would maybe change people's lives? You know, if I were to do one book, it would be a book about the spiritual growth embodied in the growth of the soil. And so that one book might well be Newt Hampson's The Growth of the Soil. Oh, very good. Or maybe even Francis Barnett's The Secret Garden. 
Oh, okay. Excellent. And um, what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners before we let you go? Two by two. Two by two. <laughs> <laughs> two by two. We can eat our way to economic security and personal freedom. It won't cost an extra cent, won't rely on any help from the government. It'll be so easy, it'll make you blush. Spend $2 a day on local food. Make the connection. Take the $2 and make the connection. And talk to other people into doing the same thing. Into doing the same thing. In a very short period of time, we will take control back and own our world. Thank you so very much for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast today and sharing your experience, Michael. It has been a blast. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us and uh, have a great day. Thanks for having me, Greg. You bet. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.